98.7 FM. FM, Arizona's sports station. Are you sitting comfortably? Yeah. Then I'll begin. Okay. Here we go. Arizona sports goes local. Local. That is awesome. We're giving the mic to local hosts right here in Phoenix. Whoa, snap. Because what's a Saturday without sports? Ninety-eight seven FM, Arizona's sports station. Arizona Sports Saturday, and a happy Saturday to all of you out there listening. This is Arizona Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. Alongside Steve Zinsmeister, Mitch Vareldis, Trevor Henry behind the glass, keeping you company today, live from the Auction Community Studios. And I want to start with this, Steve. Because we won't have time for footnotes today because there's a lot of stuff that we're getting into today locally. Serena Williams, hell of a career. Yeah, is that under the assumption that it's now over? I, I, I feel like everyone's treating it as if it is now over. I will accept that it's over. Will I be shocked if there's a comeback? No, not totally. But I'm I'm accepting of it being over. As a, I would call myself a casual tennis fan, if even that. So I'm not going to pretend to know too much here. But one thing that I've always found fascinating about Serena's climb to the top of her sport that is unique to any story I've ever seen in sports is that she had to overcome the greatest in the world being her older sibling. Yeah. And I know I'm not telling anybody any story right now that they haven't heard. I mean, everybody sure. knows this. I, I'm, I'm just reiterating the basic knowledge of tennis that I have. But, I mean, that to me, in and of itself, deserves so much respect and credit. Because it's one thing to be LeBron and to be drafted by your hometown team and have to overcome Michael Jordan's shadow. Right. But nobody inherently placed you in his shadow. You wanted that travel. Or that journey that you had to travel. Nobody, I don't know who's a good example in baseball, but like nope, the home run chases or whatever it may be, Hank Aaron, Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth, all of that is just inherent to statistics. Serena had to chase her older sibling. And that's something that I don't know that we'll ever see in sports to that degree. Ever we see it again. in sport. We see it in our own lives. Like you and I. Do you have an older sibling? I have an older sister, yeah. Right. So there's that kind of internal competition of like, oh man, she got to do all this. I want to be able to accomplish as much as she did, if not more than. Actually, somewhat funny story on that. So my older sister, her name is Leanne. She lives in Brooklyn. Uh, She went to ASU before I did. Forks up. You and I both went to ASU. Yes. Uh, I remember she was a senior when I was a freshman. So I had already seen the campus. I had been here when we dropped her off and taking tours and all that stuff, right? And she wanted to be a magazine writer. I wanted to be in TV or radio. Here I am in radio. And I remember we were sitting there at graduation. My sister is the speaker, the student speaker at graduation night. Basically, Mm -hmm. I'm not valedictorian, but pretty close. Yeah. And I remember my dad put his arm around my shoulder and he squeezes it real tight. And he goes, she just graduated in three and a half years. You better do the same. <laughs> and then he goes, ah, I'm just kidding. But like, that's my, that's my like sibling, uh, rivalry and pressure story. And I, fortunately my sister and I, we've always gotten along. It's not, it's not like that. It's nowhere near like having to play each other at Wimbledon or right. having to play each other at the U S open and overcome the fact that your older sister is already the best ever. Exactly. And now you have to become the best ever for my money. The best athlete of my living generation for my money. 
Serena Williams, hell of a career, ended last night at the U.S. Open in the third round. Yesterday, a pretty big, and we call it a Friday news dump, a pretty big Friday news dump yesterday, specifically for the Valley. But for the country, the biggest piece of that Friday news dump originally originated, excuse me, from Pete Thamel, who covers college football with ESPN. Sources, the CFP Board of Managers has decided on a 12-team college football playoff during today's meeting. Thamel would go on to say things as to the reasoning why they're going to 12 teams, and of course, we all knew the answer to begin with in the first place. Money, obviously. But it sounds like structurally, one, it's an automatic ticket for the Pac-12, the Conference of Champions, to make it into the college football playoff. And two... It increases the odds for teams that maybe have been on the outside looking in for so long or some of these group at five schools that have played ridiculously well in the regular season. And now they get an opportunity to do it against some of the best in college football. Does it change anything in the end? Not really. Yeah, if you get to the Final Four, you're still going to get Alabama. You're still going to get Georgia and Ohio State and Oklahoma. and Like, this is cool. I want to get that out of the way. This is awesome. This is good for, you know, exposure and more college football. You can't be sad about that. But it, it doesn't necessarily change the end game, at least not right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to this. I've always been a fan of the eight-team option for a college football playoff. Uh, I just I think thought, a lot of people were. I just thought it made more sense mathematically, and I don't know that I... The teams from, like... One to eight are significantly better usually than the teams I consider from nine to 14 or, you know, in this case, 12. I do think that it's cool that you're going to have a few people go into the dance that you normally wouldn't. Like every now and then you get a really random like uh, Northern Illinois has a great undefeated season in their top 10. They would make the college football playoff in this scenario. Um, every now and then you get a conference champion that you didn't expect. Maybe Miami comes out of nowhere and wins the ACC. Maybe Florida State does that. And all of a sudden they have a, a guaranteed ticket because the way I understand this is that it would be six conference champions would get in mm-hmm. and then six at-large teams. Which basically, I, I mean... Which it sounds like the five power fives, one best of the group at-large, or the group of five, excuse me, and then, as you said, the six at large. Well, and I guess in terms of Notre Dame, I guess that means Notre Dame could never be ranked higher than. Well, I, I think at sixth, the same time, Notre Dame's fifth. probably going to get in. Here's the other wrinkle to this this probably won't even occur until 2026. Right. Yeah. And they need to, time to book all the hotels and well, decide where to play the games. I think and, more importantly, they don't even know the state of college football right now. Well, teams are moving all over the place. So you've got Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC. I think that's next year. And then two years from now, you got UCLA and USC going to the Big Ten. Those are confirmed. And then even with that, there was, what was it? There was four schools, including BYU, Cincinnati. All of them are moving to the Big 12, too, right? Something like that. So there's a lot of so conf- many. Yeah. There's a lot of conference realignment, and I'm sure the CFP would like to make sure that that's all settled before they get this new setup rocking and rolling. Yeah, and you can settle where you're going to play these games, and then book the hotels and all the infrastructure that it takes to do big tournaments like this. You can figure that out before you figure out what the conferences look like. Right. Because that just, whenever you implement it, the conferences are what they are. I mean, maybe the Pac-12 isn't even really all that impressive. Uh, a couple years yeah, from now. It if, wasn't to begin with. If the Big 12 somehow uh, 
prize away ASU and U of A. I, maybe that's a thing that happens in the future, or they they steal back Colorado, or I don't know what the deal is. But yeah, the conferences might look different. Here's a little nugget that I heard yesterday. Uh, CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd mm-hmm. said that he believed that the way the college football playoff was currently structured with the four teams, that the tournament itself brought in about $600 million. Hmm. With the new structure, his sources estimate that it could be upwards of $1.2 billion, so double that. And that's on the conservative end. Those are just like rough <laughs> estimates. If you want to know why all these changes seem to be happening, you've got the college football playoff expanding. All these teams are moving conferences. NIL deals are now legal. The transfer portal is basically free agency. It all comes back to dollar dollar bills, y'all. Nobody said it better. Than me? <laughs> well, I was going to say that. Oh, well, okay. Than the Wu-Tang Clan. That's a good reference. Here's some reactions from ESPN yesterday. Desmond Howard, one of the few that not a big fan of expansion, expansion, excuse me, but said it was inevitable. I've never been a big fan of expansion simply because I never really wanted the student athletes to play more games. Right. You know what right. I mean? But now with the, you know, the NIL and you got the transfer portal, I think that it was just inevitable that this was going to happen. Now, with that being said, I, I don't know. We may start to get some different teams out there. I, I'm kind of happy now we get different dancers now to the party because this is when <laughs> upsets happen. You just never know. This gives the you know the opportunity now for some smaller teams or some teams that would not have been invited to get in there and maybe pull off an upset now. You know, every now and then. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. It'll be fun though. But if you're David Pollock, the reaction is simple: more football is good. Right. Like yeah. more football is better. Yeah. And we and listen, we got to find a way to make it right for the players and the schedules and all that stuff. Yeah. But I mean. Every year, there's a team at the end of the year. Des, we're going, man. If, if they got a shot, they might be. They might right. be hot. They might get hot and win this thing. Exactly. Well, now we're gonna see it. We saw it last year with the four teams set up with Cincinnati. Did it work well for Cincinnati? Uh, no. no. But no. now with 12 teams, you have a little bit more leeway to allow more of those types of teams. Yeah. And, listen, upsets happen. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about an Appalachian State over Michigan. We're talking about well, okay. So the first two pretty good teams. The first ever top four CFP playoff. Number four, Ohio State won the whole thing. They beat number one, Alabama, in the first round. It happens. It happens, yeah. So it does open the door a little bit. David Pollock, by the way, uh, really underrated analyst, in my opinion. Agreed. I think he's very good. Desmond Howard brings up an interesting point about injuries, like the potential for that, based on playing more games. You do have to consider that. Uh, I believe the way that this is going to be structured, it would be one, if not two, extra games. I think just one for most teams. Also, there's going to be some buys. Yeah. The way that it's structured. So I don't know how I feel about going into the first round of a college football playoff and not seeing Alabama, not seeing Georgia or Ohio State or whoever the big teams are at the time. I don't know how I feel about that. Like they get a week off and everybody else plays an extra game. But I, I tend to agree with David Pollock. More football is good. In what scenario are we sitting at home thinking, you know what? I wish that there was no football. Oh, that's on too today. much football. It's too much. I was actually making the joke with some of my friends in our fantasy football group chat. They should just keep expanding. They should make it a 64-team bracket oh, instead of a regular goodness. season. Just do that for three months. 64. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this, though. I, not that I would endorse that idea. God, Mitch, what a bad idea. Uh, but I do think that there's something to the tournament situation because I would rather see a 12, let's say a 12th ranked team and an 8th ranked team or whatever play each other than play another conference game that doesn't matter. I mean, Alabama plays a lot of week 12 
Old Dominion or Troy opponents. Yeah, they put their easy matchups at the end. Right, and to each their own. It's kind of a smart thing to do in terms of getting into the playoff, but I'm I'm totally down with more matchups of good teams facing each other across conferences. The Diamondbacks won again. Are they going to streak through September all the way to a postseason spot? Maybe. That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. Arizona Sports Saturday. And the pitch. Swung on. Grounded right to Rojas. He's got it. Tosses to Perdomo at second for the out, and the ball game is over. Arizona wins it. Final score, 2-1. to one. Chris Garagiola on the call for the Arizona Diamondbacks. The baby backs, as I like to call them. Steve Zinsmeister, Mitch Varelis with you on Arizona Sports Saturday. It's an exciting time. Can we officially call them the baby backs? Well, I think there was another baby backs team, like roughly 2011 or 12-ish. Okay, but this one, I know they're... This one feels better. This one feels a lot better. A lot more fun. So you've had a mixture of things happen over the course of this season. And by the way, this is exactly what the organization wanted Tori Lovello to do. He was brought back after they had their worst season in franchise's history. They brought him back solely not to win games, but to implement young players. Nick Ahmed missed a lot of time this season. Geraldo Perdomo's been in the mix. I wouldn't say he's been great. He doesn't hit much. Great. He's, he's been not good been great offensively. He's been great defensively, yeah. You've got Dalton Varsho, who's been up for the past two-ish years. He's not a catcher anymore. <laughs> not a catcher. He's an outfielder, <laughs> part of the long game in the outfield. Jake McCarthy has been particularly great since David Peralta was traded. First round comp pick, too, so they expected a lot out of him to begin with. Alec Thomas came up mid-year and has played a stellar center field. Maybe the best in the game of baseball. And now Corbin Carroll is up. And if I forgot anybody, you know, I hate to leave anybody out, but these are the big ones, right? You hear me rubbing my hands together? I hear it. Corbin Carroll came up (sighs) on Monday... I went to the game. I wanted to see his debut. I was hoping to see his first hit. And uh, he actually got on base by beating out an error, which I thought was an interesting way for him to start his career because he's so fast. He's the kind of fast, if you've never seen him play yet, he's the kind of fast that makes you say, holy bleep, he's fast. Right. Like, you sit there and mouth agape. Holy bleep, he's fast. He turned a, a... a knock into the left center gap into a double easily. He was on first, and I think it was Alec Thomas drove him in from first base. His first base His to, first home, to plate home speed in nine was seconds, crazy. right? Yeah, it was insane. He's running like thirty feet a second. I don't think I could do thirty feet in three minutes. Like that's where I'm at. <laughs> but it's fun to watch this team again. Yes. Finally, now you had an analogy. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before. You said something to the effect of this. September for the Diamondbacks is comparable to the eight game bubble, whatever we're calling that, the bubble games for the Suns two years ago. Yes. You probably don't have a shot at the playoffs. It's a pretty long shot. And even if you win all the games, you'd probably still need some help from elsewhere. And the Suns won all eight games and they didn't get the help they needed. So they didn't make the playoffs. But it wasn't, it didn't mean that it was not valuable to that team. How can this September? be valuable to the Diamondbacks even if they don't make the playoffs. Well, I mean, we've seen most of it since the All-Star break, right? Just the general will to go out and say, oh, we're still in this. They were down 7 nothing to the Phillies on Monday. They won 
what was it, 13 to 7, 11 to 7? I think it was 13 to 7. It was their largest comeback in franchise history. It was exciting to be there, by the seven way. 7 nothing, and they came back and pummeled the Phillies. They were down 2 nothing before I even entered the building. I got there midway through the first inning, and they were already down 2 nothing. Like, outside of how important it was for the lineup to produce that kind of performance, and Corbin Carroll was a massive part of that. The bullpen also did its part. It's very hard to come into a game when you're already down seven runs and be expected to just kind of manage the game. Is that there, was kind of what we saw on Wednesday right? when they lost 18-2, to two, whereas on Monday it was very much, all right, well, this lineup's good. What's the reason as to why we can't keep things where it's at? And then, boom, next thing you knew, it was tied. There's something, too, about we were talking about foot speed for Corbin Carroll and Certainly others have it as well. Dalton Varsho is one of the fastest catchers, I'm putting that in air quotes, Mm -hmm. that we've ever seen. I mean, like, he's a pretty fast dude. Yes. Jake McCarthy is fast. Alec Thomas is fast. Geraldo Perdomo's pretty fast, too. Yeah, he's he's got some speed, too. Josh Rojas. This team is fast. And there's something about that that's exciting, aside from just hitting long home runs or... Uh, making a flashy play in the outfield or, or whatever the case may be. There's something about fast players that's exciting. I feel like it's one of those overlooked abilities as of late. If you think about the modern day baseball game, a lot of it is very dependent on how how hard can you hit the ball. Hit the ball over the wall. How fast can you throw a pitch? But nobody's talking about how fast can you run around the bases. The effectiveness of a good baseball team is their durability and their ability to cover all areas. An outfield that has, at minimum, an outfield at minimum with Corbin Carroll in left, Alec Thomas in center, and Dalton Varsho in right is, in my opinion, the best defensive outfield in baseball. How many 50-50 balls are going to land when you've got those three dudes covering so much ground in so little time? I mean, we've seen it enough times with Alec Thomas. He's already robbed how many of it? Like three, four home runs since being called up two months ago? He single-handedly saved four runs in Merrill Kelly's start against Cincinnati. And this is a pretty hard ballpark, like home ballpark to play the outfield. Center field in particular. So it was interesting. I think it was yesterday on my ride home. uh, Chris Garagiola was interviewing Tori Lavella before the game. And Alec Thomas was not playing center field. I think it was Jake McCarthy. Yeah. And Corbin Carroll was in right. And Chris asked a, a really good question. Like, hey... I, I don't know if this is a thing, but like, how come Corbin's not playing center field? Like, we were kind of under the impression that when Alec doesn't, Corbin would. And Tory, uh, credit to him for his honesty here. He goes, listen, that's going to happen. Like, you're going to see that very, very soon, as soon as maybe even this week. But he said, we just want to ease him into the position because of how difficult our center field is compared to most. I mean, look at that 439 foot line drive that. Corbin hit on his second game. He hit one to center field. It hits off the wall. That's a home run in any other ballpark. Literally every other ballpark. Every ballpark, but not our center field. That's what makes it such a difficult position. And they've got three, maybe four guys that I feel okay about playing center field. I mean, how about the game in Chicago just this past week? Alec Thomas makes two diving catches that rob extra base hits, and then Dalton Varsha robs a home run. All of that was one game. And then even in San Francisco, which... It might be one of the toughest outfields to play in next to, like, Coors and Kansas City. Dalton Varsho robbing a extra base hit in Triples Alley on the run in center field. That dude was a catcher last year. <laughs> For my money, 
that defensive outfield is going to save this team runs, and as a result, it's going to bring a lot more wins. Also, I think it deserves to be said, too, Stone Garrett shouldn't be left out of the conversation. No. He's kind of your fifth outfielder and the only right-handed hitting outfielder. But the guy hit a home run the other day off Dylan Cease. Dylan Cease might be the second or third best pitcher in the American League He might League win this the year. Cy Young. That'll be Verlander probably, right? But he might win. He might, yeah. He's in the conversation. Yeah, I think you're right. So, I mean, like, it's not like this guy can't play. Your outfield, the five guys you have up right now, I don't think you need to touch it going into spring I made, training. I made the joke the other night on Twitter. Don't get an outfielder this offseason. You're good. You don't need it. Got Alec Thomas, Jake McCarthy, Stone Garrett, Corbin Carroll, and Dalton Varshow. You know what if I thought? If anything, get an insurance policy, but you're good. What I thought was kind of hilarious, uh, Jordan Luplo was brought into this organization at the beginning of the year because he normally hits lefties very well. Yeah. He did not do that. He didn't hit anything this season. He didn't, no. They, he sent the him down, the barn. they sent him down to Reno. Uh, I forget, was that when Corbin came up? Yes. I think it was. It was the corresponding move. And... What I found hilarious is that Luplo immediately in his first game hit a home run, and then in his second game in Reno, he hit a home run. Now I realize it's Reno, it's the PCL, yes. it's the minor leagues, but the guy responded to adversity. I'm not saying Luplo has a future in this outfield, and I honestly at this point don't think that they need him, but I found that interesting that they finally figured out the outfield. Now you can turn your attention elsewhere. I think the infield is pretty set. Christian Walker is maybe the best player on your team this year in terms of production. I think it's clear you and I both know the irony of the situation. The only thing this team still needs is pitching. And they went out and spent on it this past offseason, and it hasn't worked. I'll, very quickly, I'll give you one other position that I want to look into. Catcher. I'm not sold on Carson Kelly. I know that he flashes, and he looks really good. When he looks really good, he's great. I mean, Monday night, he had one of the biggest hits I've seen in person lately, and that was a double to the right field side to score three runs, uh, two or three runs. I'm not sold that he's an everyday catcher. I would be interested in them trying to find somebody who could be an everyday catcher. Yeah, I could see that. But then when that happens, you've officially lost the Paul Goldschmidt trade. It's not Kevin Durant, but the Phoenix Suns are interested in trading for somebody else. We'll tell you who that is next on Arizona Sports Saturday. 98.7 FM, Arizona's sports station. It's Arizona Sports Saturday. It is Arizona Sports Saturday. Steve Zinsmeister and Mitch Vareldis with you. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. If you were listening to this station yesterday, you heard an interesting nugget during the Burns and Gambo show. When John Gambadoro reported more on the Suns' interest in bringing in a player via trade. No, we're not talking about Kevin Durant. Although, we're talking about a player that has been mentioned already this offseason as a possibility for the Phoenix Suns. And that is Bojan Bogdanovic. Who? I'm kidding. <laughs> Do I have to pronounce it again? I feel no, like I no, did no, it pretty no. well the first you time. You did it right the first time. All right. So, Oof. to... Better set up how we came to this and how Gambo came to his report from a few days ago. Donovan Mitchell was traded to Cleveland. And in that trade, the Jazz got back a bunch of pieces. But as a result of that being that trade being done, it was the Jazz's athletics beat writer or the, the beat writer for the Jazz on the athletic. 
Got it. Organization of words. I, 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 I picked up on it eventually. He threw in there that his sources had told him that the Jazz are also listening to trade offers on Boyan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, and Jordan Clarkson. And that led to Gambo finding out from his sources that the Suns have reached out to the Jazz inquiring about Boyan Bogdanovich. So I like this possibility, but the question now is, how do we build this trade? And I honestly want to know, is there any reason that we can't build this around not just Bogdanovich, but also Clarkson? That's a possibility. So the first time that I remember hearing Bogdanovich's name this offseason in relation to the Suns was when they were trying to throw together a trade for Kevin Durant. Yes. And forgive me if I have some of the details mixed up. There was a lot of stuff that happened this summer that didn't actually come to fruition. But basically it was going to be Kevin Durant to the Suns and Donovan Mitchell would go somewhere, probably Brooklyn, and then Indiana might be involved. And there were all these pieces moving. Aiton would go to Indiana or whatever. And... I remember I did a show with Gambo. Uh, we were here in the afternoons one day, and he said, well, you know, Steve, there, there's a chance that the Suns could get more than just Kevin Durant. Yeah. And I was like, more than Kevin? Like, what? what is more than Kevin Durant? And he's like, well, what if they could get a role player, possibly even a starting caliber player from one of those teams, like the Jazz? And one of the names he brought up was Boyan Bogdanovich. Now, this is a guy who is a pretty good basketball player. He's 32 years old. He does make a little bit of money, but he's an 18 points a game. I was going to say, scorer. you know what he can do that the Suns severely needed last year? Scoring? He can score. I wouldn't say they severely needed that. They needed it in the playoffs. They severely needed it in the playoffs. Yeah, and they Boyan Bogdanovich is going to score for you in the playoffs outside of that uh, last second three point shot attempt against Dallas to close out that one playoff series, but we're not going to talk about that. So, either way. Bogdanovich is an upgrade. Yeah, and he plays the three, which I think is a position where, you know, obviously Mikel Bridges has a lock on the on the third position in the lineup. I think yes. between Jay Crowder, whatever's going on there, and Cam Johnson, you have your four figured out. Well, look, I think this is a move where it's respectfully, and this isn't anything against Jay Crowder, but this is a trade package that I think has to involve Jay Crowder first and foremost. Maybe. Because you're not going to bench Bogdanovich. He's going to start. Probably. And you're not going to bench Bridges. And you're not going to tell Crowder to seat on the bench. And Cam Johnson continues to come off the bench. So you need Cam Johnson to come off the bench. And you're going to have Boyan start. And he's going to play the four, but he's going to be really a three that's a stretch four. So I was talking this week with Kevin Zimmerman. He's one of our guys on the Empire of the Suns podcast mm-hmm. at ArizonaSports.com. Follows these things very, very closely. And I asked him, what's it going to take to get a guy like Bogdanovich? And he said, yeah, it probably will take you two first-round picks. Now, those Suns picks are probably not worth a ton because your team is probably still going to be quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, but are you okay with giving up two first-round picks for a guy who's not a star? I mean, he's not hes not Donovan Mitchell. Let's, let's get that straight. But he's an 18-point-a-game kind of guy, and he's probably your fifth or sixth best player on the team. That's a pretty good role player to have. So maybe you're okay with giving up those picks. Plus, how many times have you and I talked about that ESPN article that basically painted the picture of the Suns don't care about their draft picks? They they do That's the a Ram- little facetious, but they're not extreme like the Rams' philosophy of f them picks, but they're not very locked down into keeping them. Yeah, or utilizing the, them. They're not as interested in high draft picks. They're more interested in getting a caliber of player that's, you know, Cam Johnson, Mikel Bridges. They were older prospects. They were guys who had been in college for a while, guys who had won a lot of games. 
So, yeah, maybe those picks are a little bit less valuable to a team like the Suns. Plus, in those lower rounds, it's such a crapshoot. I mean, there's those few guys that are out of the lottery picks that go on to do great things in the NBA. I mean, most famously, Donovan Mitchell was outside of the lottery. I think Kawhi Leonard was at the tail end of the lottery. Paul George was at the tail end of the lottery. Like, there are guys out there that are, you know, they're in crapshoot picks and you take them and they turn out to be great successes. But more often than not, it's, would you rather have the guy with the experience or would you rather take a chance on a guy? And if you're the Suns, and I made this argument last week, Steve, if you're the Suns right now, your focus needs to be on how can you succeed again in the postseason and get back to the finals. Because you've got a guaranteed year or two and at most three left with Chris Paul. So and you, that's your window. You mentioned Jordan Clarkson still in Utah. Yes. If you wanted to get both, if you wanted to get Clarkson and Bogdanovich, what do you think that takes and what does that trade look like? So it's funny. I was trying to use the old trade machines that you find on the different websites. It's dangerous. Money-wise, if you're going to take on Bogdanovich and Clarkson... One that I found to work included, included, excuse me, Crowder, Shamit, Campaign, and Tory Craig. And then I'm sure in order to get Clarkson, you would need to cough up three or two picks in the first round, and maybe a pick swap for both, like for both of them included. Mm-hmm. Three picks. So and think maybe of it this three way: three or four role players, three picks, and four players to get two players, but both of them can shoot the lights out. Does Utah even have the roster space after all those guys they got back from Minnesota and all the guys they're well, getting from just Cleveland? Wave, well, they, they, they'll just wave the guys they don't want to keep. Yeah, yeah I guess that's like, true. They'll probably keep Markkinen, who they got from Cleveland in the deal. They already agreed to a sign-in trade with Colin Sexton, so he's going to be their next centerpiece there. Here's the appeal of Jordan Clarkson to me. He's a 16-point-a-guy last year, uh, point-per-game-last-year guy. 16 points. The year before, 18 points per game. That's, I mean... On the scoring level, as a backup ball handler, this would be a really good player. He plays roughly 25 to 30 minutes a game, about 25 a game. You could have that guy coming off the bench. He would repl- basically replace Campaign, who was non-existent in the playoffs. Bogdanovich becomes your three. Bogdanovich is a really good shooter. Clarkson, not quite as good of a three-point shooter, at least not this past season. So, yeah, that would solve two holes in your bench. If you're, and they're the two biggest holes, as far as I'm concerned, outside of backup center. You have to be but not Sharich sold. But is coming back. Yeah, that's true, too. You have to be not sold on campaign and Jay Crowder, I think, in order to do this. I don't know. The playoffs say a lot about what kind of play, player you're going to be when it matters most. And this Suns, team's, this Suns team, excuse me, right now is a playoff team. And again, I emphasized last week, they need to do everything to focus on being a better playoff team. Because they're already good enough in the regular season to make it that far. They were a number two seed when they went all the way to the finals. They were an underdog most of the way. Everybody thought the seven seed Lakers were going to beat them. Because they had finally gotten back all their pieces. And then, of course, as we all know, when Anthony Davis got hurt, that was the end of it. Like, if you're the Suns, the regular season needs to be treated like you're preparing for the marathon. And the real marathon is the playoffs. So you spend all this time training up for it, and then you got to go full guns a-blazing when the games matter most. Yeah, I mean, if you take it back to Jay Crowder, because I think, I think you're right. I think he could play a key role in whether or not this ends up getting done. 
And if I remember right, did Jay Crowder play in Utah before? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Part He's of the been reason, everywhere, man. You're right that Jay Crowder didn't really do much in the postseason last year, but I will rebuttal with this. Part of the reason you brought Jay Crowder in is because he's got playoff experience. He's got finals experience. But now so do it's the rest like of the Suns. It's not like that's gone. It's not gone, but the rest of the Suns now also have finals experience. So not to diss Jay Crowder, but like you don't need that as a reason to keep him anymore. Is Bojan a better player than Jay Crowder? Like a starting wing. Let's be honest. They play the three and the four position. They're so similar on the Suns that they're basically just forwards. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Game on the line and you don't have Paul or Booker available. Between Jay Crowder and Boyan Bogdanovich, who's, just ta- who's taking the final shot? Well, I don't know that Boyan creates his own shot. Although Jay Crowder doesn't create shots a lot, too. He's kind of been a spot-up three kind of guy. And when it's, when it's so I, I think they're comparable. I'm not saying that they're that well, of one is they're dramatically better than of the other. Of course they're comparable, but one I trust a little bit more to actually make his three-pointers. Which is kind of why you brought him in, right? Yeah. Three and D. He's great D. Let's see. The three has completely dwindled since he has joined the Suns. Last season, Jay Crowder shot 35% from three. That's not bad. And you said Boyan was a 40, though? He was 39%, I believe. Yeah, 39%. Little bit better. Little bit. Better is all you need when you're right there. He scored 18 a game while playing 30 minutes a game. Jay Crowder scored 9 points per game in 28 minutes. Basically the same minutes. And think about that. Bogdanovich was also on an offense that had Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. And Jordan Clarkson can give you 18 off the bench. He wasn't always the feature target, and yet he still produced when needed. I think I'm on board, especially with some of the drama going on around Jay. I saw that he like Look, pinned I think it's, an Instagram I, or something about somebody saying, come back to the heat. I think it's clear that Jay's been frustrated this offseason. Yeah. And maybe he wants to go, and maybe they should give it to him. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, speaking of, uh, it, today is a college football Saturday. We don't have NFL football this weekend, but... Big news for the Arizona Cardinals. Just yesterday, they signed one of their players to an extension. We'll tell you who it is and why it's important. That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports goes local. It's Arizona Sports Saturday, 98.7 FM, Arizona's Sports Station. Mitch Vareldis, Steve Zinsmeister, back here with you. In the Auction Community Studios on Arizona Sports Saturday, Trevor Henry behind the glass, keeping us company, serving as our one-man audience. Thankful for the work that you do, Trev, even though you're busy watching Michigan beat the crud out of my sister's alma mater. <laughs> Sorry, sister. No, it's okay. What's the score in that game? Is it over? I don't even know. 44 to 0. Oh. Jeez. Oh, she went all the... So she's doing grad work at Pitt, so she went to the Backyard Brawl Thursday and then went to the big house to watch CSU against Michigan today. Oh, man. There's just something about like the first couple weeks of the college football season when all the big programs just whoop up on all the little programs. It's yeah, two like, games. Like yeah. when Pittsburgh beats West Virginia. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like when... <laughs> Like I don't I don't know what's another good example. My team I I've been an Ohio State Buckeye fan my whole life. Sorry, Trev. But uh we're playing an actual school this week, so you might want to tune in you for that one later. You might have the best game of the week. I'm saying. Of the year. Question. I'm saying. But 
so many programs every year play just these rinky-dink. Ohio State usually plays like Youngstown State or like Toledo, <laughs> Bowling Green. Whoever Alabama's got this week, they're out there somewhere. Yeah. Except for Alabama, they will play Old Dominion in Week 12. They'll put that game at the end of the season so that they know they'll go into the college football playoff. You took the words right out of my mouth. I, I know, man. I'm like, why don't we do that? In general, why though, you do that? It's exciting to have college football back. It's yeah. exciting to have our Saturdays, and Steve, I guarantee, is going to be distracted for most of them when Ohio State is on during primetime during our show. Which they will be every week. But coming up next week, Steve, as a matter of fact, coming up on Thursday, the NFL season begins. Yes. The Rams host the Bills on Thursday night football to kick off the season. What a game. And then a few days later, the Arizona Cardinals host the Kansas City Chiefs in their first game of the year. Yeah. The prime CBS game, by the way. They get the Nance and Romo crew on Sunday. There's a couple interesting storylines there, right? Cliff Kingsbury and his former college quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. Oh, I was just going to list everything off from the Cardinals' tumultuous offseason. What were you going to say? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of that, too. A and lot like, of drama. And, like, the least significant one of the bunch, it feels like, is Kyler Murray's frick, uh, silly um, homework addendum in his contract that got... Removed. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much that's going to really be talked about. I mean, like, is he going to have a bad look, game and we're all going to look at each other like, oh, he didn't do his homework this week? Look, I know that like, gonna, I'm not going to do that. There's going to be a lot of detractors out there if he kind of comes out the gate slow and like, oh, you should have played at least some in the preseason. No, that's not. No, I guess so. Yeah, I wouldn't say it needs to be that much. The Cardinals are the still Cardinals putting together are, the roster, and they've still created a bunch of storylines that I'm sure a lot of these national guys. They're going to come in and say, oh, I haven't gotten to talk about this yet. I want to tell you more about why Kyler Murray had a contract clause. And then, you know, us here in the Valley, we just go mad because it's like we stopped talking about this three months ago. Leave us alone. Speaking of contracts, though, there was a big signing yesterday for the Cardinals. Jalen Thompson got a contract extension yesterday. He's extended through 2025. The safety is set to make up to $40 million dollars. 24 and a half guaranteed that according to Tom Pelissero. This is a really smart lockup if you're Steve Kime and the Cardinals. Yeah, Gambo had been talking for a long time about there were three players they wanted to extend. They were DJ Humphreys, got that one done. Jalen Thompson, got that one done. And Byron Murphy, and that one remains to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Jalen Thompson is probably one of the most underrated safeties in the NFL. A lot of people nationally probably overlook him because of Buddha, because Buddha is so good. Um, and for that reason, he, he goes overlooked. Also, too, the Cardinals haven't really had a lot of good corners in the last couple of years since yeah. Patrick Peterson was good, which was probably five years ago now. <laughs> uh, so, you know, your secondary is two really good safeties and not a lot of cornerback help. Yeah. I think Byron's okay. I, I don't think he's great. I don't think he's a number one in this league, at least not yet. But I think this is a really smart signing. They, they're solidifying their back end. They've got probably the best safety tandem in the entire NFL. I could argue the best. Yeah, I think it's an the, easy argument. Off the top of my head, I can think of like a really good safety on one team, like Tyron Matthew on New Orleans, or like back when Jamal Adams was at the top of his game in Seattle. Like you can pick here and there some really good safeties on really good teams. Jimmy Ward with the Niners. But you can't really pick a really good tandem I mean, outside of, you know, from years ago when the Legion of Boom was good or the no-fly zone in Denver or even here when we had Savage Season, right? 
Like it's been a long time since there's been a true solid all pro level tandem at safety. God, that Legion of Boom one. Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas. That's that's like number one ever, maybe in my mind. Maybe I'm missing an obvious one, no, but that, that one's pretty obvious to me. I don't think so. And I don't think this is necessarily on that level yet. I mean, like, I don't think Jalen Thompson is Cam Chancellor. I don't think he's Earl Thomas either. But there is an argument to be made that Jalen Thompson is actually the better of our two safeties. Yeah. And Buddha's a pretty great safety. He's a great team guy. The locker room loves him. But Jalen might be just as good. Last season, by the way, Jalen Thompson had 121 combined tackles. Buddha had 98. Now, now, I'm not saying that the guy with the more tackles is always the better player, well, it's part but that's, it, a, that's a tangible way to look at part it. Part of it is because he's such a great open field tackler, maybe the best in the NFL. You mentioned like he might be better than Buddha. You weren't the only one that thinks so. Jalen Thompson. I, I've had two people. I'm not going to say who. I've had two people tell me they think Jalen Thompson has surpassed Buddha. Wow. That they think Jalen Thompson Whoa. Whoa. has become I was not ready for that. one of the best safeties in, in football. And that's not because Buddha's taken a step back. Right. It has nothing to do with Buddha. Yeah. It's just they think Jalen Thompson has become one of the best safeties in football. That was Dave Pash when he joined Wolf and Luke at the beginning of August. And now here we are at the start of September, a month later. Jalen Thompson's getting a lot of deserved love. And I don't think now that he's got this contract done, people are going to be overlooking him much longer. Here's the other thing, too. This was the perfect time to lock up Jalen Thompson. Why? Because if he goes out and has another stellar season again, and say it includes either an all-pro or a Pro Bowl appearance, he's going to have wanted more money then than he's getting now. This is a very smart signing, time-wise, for Steve Kime. So Buddha got four years, $59 million. At the time, it was the highest in the league. Jalen got three years, $40 million. The average annual salaries come out to about 15 for Buddha and about 13 and a third for Jalen. Wow. Like, you can make an argument, and there have been some high-paid safeties this offseason. You can make an argument that Jalen would surpass even Buddha's average annual. Now, if you signed him a year later, I will say this. I love both of those players. I would rather have that tandem at safety than pretty much any other in the league. At the same time, if you're going to invest, what is that, $28 million per season in a specific group in the secondary, I think every general manager in football would tell you they'd rather it be two elite corners. Just because of the the nature of the league, it's a right. skill position. It's you need elite corners to shut down elite receivers, which seemingly every team has at least one or two of those nowadays, especially in the West. Right. I would rather have two elite corners than two elite safeties, but sometimes it's just the way that the drafts break. Right. I mean, you got Buddha, you got Jalen, and they both turned out to be fantastic in their own right. I think they deserve the respect that they're getting contractually. But I would I would argue that I'd rather have two elite corners. And right now, I don't feel like you have really any really good corners. Coming up next, the second hour of Arizona Sports Saturday coming up. And Steve and I are going to tell you why Corbin Carroll needs to get paid. Now, next on Arizona Sports Saturday.